Beginning around 700,000 years ago, off the southwest coast of the Italian peninsula, where the African tectonic plate subducts underneath the Adriatic plate, molten rock, pushed up through the chimneys of submarine volcanoes, began constructing, one eruption at a time, the volcanic arc known as the Aeolian Islands. It is a small instance of planet Earth allowing a new tiny amount of its massive interior to surface and reveal itself. There are currently about 1,500 active volcanoes on land where we can see them, but there are 1,000 times more, more than 1 million, volcanoes submerged under the seas. The Aeolian Islands are named for Aeolus, the keeper of the winds, who gave shelter to Ulysses and attempted but failed to send him safely home on the western wind. This chain of islands has been the site to many settlements, including those by the ancient Greeks, the ancient Romans, the Visigoths, and the Normans, both by pirates, fishermen, and Hellenistic artisans who produced antique ceramics. Today, only one volcano, Stromboli, remains active. The rest have silently cooled, gone dormant, keeping their secrets to themselves. And in 1960, a young woman named Anna traveled to Lisca Bianca, one of the smallest of these islands, and just as silently disappeared. Hello listeners and welcome to the Criterion Cast, where we discuss the important and contemporary classic films of the Criterion Collection. We're recording this on July 2nd, 2020. I'm Jordan Esso, and I'll be your host today for episode 208 as we shine the spotlight on Michelangelo Antonioni's 1960 film, La Ventura. This is Spine 98, and it is the first film in what has been retrospectively titled Antonioni's Alienation Trilogy, also known as his Trilogy on Modernity and Its Discontents, which also includes La Notte from 1961 and La Clisse from 1962. Let's meet our roundtable. First, we have Scott Nye down in Los Angeles, who has recently come clean about being radicalized at a young age by Batman the Animated Series. <laughs> good evening, Scott. Uh, good evening to you. Quite the introduction. Second, we have David Blakesley in Wyoming, Michigan, who enjoyed Father's Day drinking martinis on a boat. Sounds like a good time. Yeah, it works for me. <laughs> it's good to be with you guys again. And third, of course, we have Ark Devins in Berkeley, California. And you've promised to bring the love tonight uh, on tonight's <laughs> episode. Is that right, Ark? Well, I have to say, I, I was not sure where you were going with that introduction when you started. I'm like, when are we starting? What What are we talking about? But uh, <laughs> but it really came together. But yes, yes, I, I un, un, unadulteratedly love this film. Yes. So I do need a volunteer to summarize the narrative of the film of La Ventura. Let's do it. Uh, given that I just finished rewatching it about, like I said, 15 minutes ago. Uh, so th- this film tells the story uh, primarily of three people, uh, Sandro, Anna, and Claudia. Uh, Anna is a young woman whose father is a former diplomat. She's a woman of wealth and privilege, and she has not seen her boyfriend, Sandro, who in like three months, I think, uh, because he's been uh, off on business trips. Her and her friend Claudia are going to meet him to go on a, a boating trip with some other rich and I think in some cases titled friends of theirs. And, uh, they, you know, uh, Anna expresses some in disinterest in, in maintaining the relationship with Sandro and disinterest in life in general. Anyway, they end up, they go out to the Island. They're having a, a, a nice time in theory, lots of little 
simmering tensions all, all around the different people on the trip. And then it, it becomes time to get ready to leave. And they discover that Anna is nowhere to be found. So uh, they begin to search across the island for her, cannot find her. Uh, eventually the police are called in. Her father's called in. No one can find her. And Sandro and Claudia decide to track down some leads they've gotten on places she may or may not uh, be. How far into the plot do you want me to go? Yeah, just give a little more clue as to what's going on with Sandra okay. and Claudia. Yeah. So uh, as they begin to search for uh, Anna and all of these sort of like vague clues of where she might be, they begin to uh, fall in love with each other and um, increasingly their attentions turn away from finding Anna towards sort of finding each other. And, uh, and the rest of the film is about their dealing with those things and, and the society around them. Perfect. And of course, listeners, we will be delving into all of those details. So if you haven't seen the film and you don't want to be spoiled, probably check in with that film before you listen to the rest of it. Let's go to first impressions and let's start with David. Oh, well, yeah, this is, uh, this is a great film. Uh, this is pretty close to ground zero uh, as far as essential art house is concerned. I think it's uh, a very pivotal and a landmark. It's got historic value as a as a real game changer in in uh, the evolution of cinema. Uh, you know, we've spent some time in recent episodes of this podcast talking about uh, Rossellini and other kind of uh, you know big mover and shaker in Italian film. And Antonioni is kind of taking it in some new directions. Uh, this is a film that I think has a you know very towering reputation. Uh, I think it makes a very good first impression, but the more I've lived with it and rewatched it over the years, uh, the more it reveals. The more I just you know find myself uh, really deeply appreciative, admiring, and respectful of Antonioni's uh, genius. I mean, I think this is just a, a, a really powerful film it's uh immaculately um constructed and uh the backstory of how the film was made and all of the you know really crazy obstacles that had to be overcome to put this thing together just makes it all the more impressive so yeah i'm a huge fan and really looking forward to getting into this conversation uh yeah it's a very rewarding rewarding film and one that i think you know anybody who really wants to you know deeply appreciate and understand cinema really needs to to grapple with not everybody's maybe going to enjoy it to the same degree that i do but i think there's a lot to be discovered here and uh yeah it's it's a it's a masterpiece i certainly agree with all of that what about you scott yeah uh, i absolutely agree and this is one that i in addition to loving now i have a lot of personal nostalgia for you know i was first saw it oh i think probably 2007 yeah because it was a couple of months after antonio he died actually a lot was being written about him um, as, and it sort of made him sound more abstract than I first found this film. You know, I was reading it, I thought it was going to be some kind of dreamy Lynchian or like persona-esque uh, kind of dreamscape film. Uh, and then I saw it and it feels very grounded and very literal and very straightforward. But and in a way that kind of disappointed me, I suppose. And then I ended up just buying the disc because I was like, well, it's an important film. I should, I should own it. And as the years went on, I just put it on from time to time, watch it more and more. And it does kind of get more abstract as it goes on. You know, there's so much that goes on between the characters. that's so undefined and so irresolute. It's very much about, you know, everything that passes between people that goes unsaid and which goes kind of undefined, uh, like I said. And, 
the more I watch it, the more mysterious it really gets. Uh, the more the stranger the characters get, the more inexplicable the plot gets. And the more it does kind of feel like that abstract film that I was first uh, expecting when I was 20 or 21, whenever I saw it. Um, and for that reason, it's one I can return to again and again, because it just keeps getting more mysterious and more interesting. I think that's a, a fascinating point and one that I hadn't considered, but the idea that this film, that its mystery is kind of elongate and that it's more literal qualities kind of compress and recede, I think is absolutely accurate, um, which really speaks to kind of the layers of it and what David was saying about how well it's constructed. Because um, most films obviously don't do that upon you know future readings or future viewings. They, they become sort of lighter weight and this doesn't do that. Arik, you've already said you loved it. Any additional <laughs> things to add before we move into Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so I, we are in unfamiliar territory for listeners, close close <laughs> listeners of this pod, uh, podcast. Not because I liked it, but because I've seen it before. Um, you know, it, it, usually on this show, y- y'all have all seen the film before and I haven't. Um, but but they, it's both, right? It is both. Th- this time it's both. But if we <laughs> if you go back to our Bergman series, I love all those films, right? So, um, but, uh, uh, so I, I, feel very similarly to David that this is a pretty foundational film in the, in the history of sort of uh, international world cinema art house cinema, the, the, you, you, there's really no definition of the criterion collection that doesn't have to include uh, this film. For me, it's, it's a film. I, I went back and read what I wrote about it for my cinema gadfly site in 2016, when I think I first saw it. And I mostly wrote about how, for me, it's about, uh, how we uh, how we encounter the world in an era post traditional values, where those those kind of traditional family religious uh, uh, and community values have been kind of obsoleted by the modern world and modernity, and uh, a little bit in some ways like not dissimilar to some of the territory that Jacques Tati is exploring. Although that's sort of in terms of the infrastructural level of society, and this is kind of the interpersonal level. But like if you're missing those touchstones, if if you don't have those predetermined meaning for your life, where do you find it? And I, I would say that you know, from that lens, this film is even more relevant in 2020, maybe than it even was in 1960. So I, I just think it's a, an absolute masterpiece. I'm a huge fan of Antonioni in general. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I, Monica Vitti and, and I just, everything about this film is wonderful to me. So yeah, I'm excited to, uh, to get into it. Very cool. I want to build off of, uh, some of the things that you just mentioned in terms of the sort of social environment and social politics around this narrative. And I wasn't sure I was going to do this, but I'd like to read just a couple of things that Antonio wrote in his Cannes statement. So I guess this, this film came out in 1960, uh, premiered at Cannes to, I guess, a, a sort of riotous uh, screening where people booed and, and were so negative that in fact the director and several of the stars left uh, reportedly in tears um, only to be redeemed um, immediately thereafter by a very deeply appreciative and congratulatory note uh, signed by Rossellini and a, a bunch of other people that were relevant film critics or filmmakers at the time but he did Antonioni did supply this statement um, and I'm not I'm going to sort of cherry pick here two different things to see if it can jumpstart um, some observations from you guys. He starts with this. Today, the world is in, endangered by an extremely serious split between a science that is totally and consciously projected into the future and a rigid and stereotyped morality that all of us recognize as such and yet sustain out of cowardness and sheer laziness. 
that's at the very beginning of his notes. At the very end, he starts to talk about a unhealthy obsession in our culture with eroticism. And he says, it is a symptom of the emotional sickness of our time. But this preoccupation with the erotic would not become obsessive if Eros were healthy, that is, if it were kept within human proportions. But Eros is sick. Man is uneasy. Something is bothering him. And whenever something bothers him, man reacts. But he reacts badly, only on erotic impulse. And he is unhappy. Now, this film is often described as a love story. And, Arik, I think you said in your synopsis that, that Sandro and Claudia fall in love in Anna's absence. Yeah, I, we could deconstruct that. I, I would argue maybe not, but that, that is, there's an element, right? There's an element of that. Uh, they might be playing at that as opposed to actually falling in love. Yeah, up until the very end. But thinking about these comments from Antonioni, this is, I guess, what he, how he wanted to think about the narrative in, in some sense, at least mirrored it somehow. And uh, how, would we, how would you guys think about the actions of these characters in terms of this sort of unhealthy erotic impulse? Well, okay, I'll, I'll jump in here. The, the traditional morality, I guess, uh, once we get kind of past the mystery of the disappearance of Anna and Sandro's pretty ardent and zealous pursuit of Claudia, almost within hours of the you know conclusion that you know, Anna's nowhere to be found, she maybe you know uh, stowed away, uh, you know, found a way off the island, and has just kind of abandoned everybody, abandoned him in particular. Uh, after they'd had a little bit of a, a kind of a, a falling out, it's not a loud vocal argument. It's just that they're clearly not connecting. There's an earlier scene in the film where you know Sandro and and uh, Anna make love at his apartment. And, uh, but, but she's already agitated. You know, there's this scene or porque, 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 why, why, why? She's kind of explain herself. They go through the motions of, uh, you know, a sexual encounter. And, you know, there's some very interesting framing that goes on there where you can see Anna is distracted even in the middle of the act here. And of course it's not really graphically portrayed, but you know, you, you fill in the blanks and you figure out this is what's going on. Further on in the trip, uh, Sandro kind of makes some references to their encounter, and Anna takes some umbrage at that, and uh, he kind of, you know, dismisses her you know, her pushback, you know, goes into a little nap, into a little reverie, and that's the point at which Anna disappears. Uh, so, with all of that aside, now we've got Sandro kind of just coming after Claudia pretty pretty head on. And uh, it seems like, you know, the, back to this idea of the traditional morality is like, it's just indecent. It's too soon. You, you don't it just uh, kind of flip the switch and now you get with, you know, uh, Anna's gorgeous friend. Uh, Claudia, however, you know, finds that something in her is attracted to Sandro. Uh, and so I think that's that's kind of one of the, the, the key pieces here is like, does she abide by the traditional morality that says, no, it just isn't, this isn't the right thing to do to get with this guy this quickly. Uh, and yet she finds herself yielding. Uh, but what, what is the basis of that attraction? I mean, there's certainly a, uh, a physical, a carnal desire. They're both very good looking people and, uh, both kind of in the prime of their, their sexual, uh, potentials, their energies and all of that. Uh, but what else is there? Um, 
And it's just very fascinating to see, you know, Claudia's emotional arc. There's times when she's clearly conflicted. There's times when she's kind of rapturous and energized. And you can really tell that uh, there's something really alive and, and, and uh, invigorating going on within her and within the both of them. But then just as quickly, they, they drift apart in their own, you know, sort of separate directions and uh, kind of locating the substance of what is this relationship supposed to be. Uh, I think that's kind of one of those kind of compelling uh, compelling aspects of this film that, you know, presents an object for all, for all viewers to contemplate in our own uh, history of relationships our our own question about what is it that draws me to this person what is it that holds us together and uh you know where where do these what do these relationships develop into beyond just the surface uh attraction or the need for companionship or even the uh the status of having a uh a good looking person on your arm uh when you're going about your you know going about your life so in that view, the the erotic sickness would be the maybe the giving into temptation almost because I think the other way to look at it is that the, the sickness is the reluctance to to accept the, uh, the new lover. Oh, I don't think it's either of those. To be honest, Jordan, I think that the the sickness is that these people are clearly struggling with a lack of meaning for their lives, all of them. And have replaced it with sort of casual sexuality, which, as as Antonioni says, there's nothing inherently wrong about casual sexuality if it's healthy. But if you're trying to build a life around that and that's all you have, it clearly leads to – I mean, they, they just are jumping, especially Sandro, just jumping from fling to fling. But even a Claudia or an Anna, like the way that that is playing out is performative and unhealthy and not – really built into deep connections. And I think you see it at the end where suddenly he's crying too, and she's crying and she did, she makes that sort of difficult decision to put her hand on his head. And you could argue whether or not she should or shouldn't do that. But it's the only moment in the film where anyone to my mind has any kind of real connection. Cause even after Anna is presumably dead, if, if at best missing, none of her friends seem to care that much. Uh, Sandro sort of cares, but he's almost seems like he's being, driven to care by Claudia, who he's mostly just trying to pursue. And Claudia is probably the most healthy, balanced person in the film. But that's not saying that much. It's not saying that <laughs> much. Yeah. No. So, yeah, I would say that the, 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 the eroticism, the erotic sickness is, is attempting to build a life of connection only through sexuality, with, as David said, with nothing else to support those relationships. But they're also, in some capacity, replacing the void left by Anna, I think, um, that she, you know, they're ostensibly looking for her, so they're thinking about her constantly, and it's really the one thing the two of them have in common, yeah. as they try to kind of get to know each other through their relationships, they don't really find a lot of other connective ground, they just have the fact that they're searching for Anna, and as that kind of gives way, so too does any kind of connection they have. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it almost feels like the film isn't so much about the search for Anna and it's not even really about her disappearance, but it's about her erasure. And it feels like, you know, the narcotic qualities of, of, of eroticism that you were uh, referring to Arik, like that becomes the vehicle through which perhaps Claudia and Sandro uh, erase Anna. Like their relationship is the means by which the erasure of Anna becomes possible. Well, certainly Claudia 
specifically says by the end that she's gone in a couple days from feeling like she was going to die at the thought of her friend's death to actively wanting her to not return. So, you know, that, 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 that does lead some credence to that. And I, I think Scott's point is, is really strong that they've, that they've sort of, that that's the only connective tissue that they have. The only thing I would say about that is that even those relationships, I mean, early in the film, you know, Anna makes Claudia keeps Claudia waiting outside while she, you know, goes and has sex with her boyfriend. And at the same time is kind of telling her boyfriend, yeah, I don't know. I got used to you not being around. I don't really even want you around. Right. So those things are already fraying as well. So maybe that, maybe that only pushes them more down the path that Scott's talking about because they're also feeling the Anna was already pushing them away. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just kind of like an emptiness built on emptiness. And I think, I mean, I know this is certainly true for me, even friendships that in retrospect, I can look back and be like, well, there wasn't a lot of there, there in kind of the immediate aftermath. When you realize someone's falling out of your life, you do still kind of miss them. Um, even if they didn't represent much, even if the connection didn't prove to be that deep, they're fam- they're familiar, if nothing else, they're a grounding force in your life. Or you miss the rituals of that relationship that yeah, can, absolutely. Be, can be imitated. Do you, uh, do the three of you want to know what happened to Anna? Like, does she, does this mystery kind of cling to you as you watch the rest of the story unfold? I'll give you an example of like, um, I just saw Bunny Lake is missing for the first time. Don't spoil that movie. I haven't watched it yet. I won't spoil it. It's pretty great. <laughs> um, but I will say that the film is definitely about where the is mystery. Bunny Lake? It never yeah. lets go of it. Um, and I won't, I was going to say one other thing about that, but I'll, I'll leave it alone. But I'll just say this Thank film, you. I think, doesn't uh, maintain the urgency around that mystery. Yeah, the film doesn't care. And yeah. in fact, I think I read something that um, they actually were planning on filming a resolution. They were going to film a scene where uh, they had scripted and were going to film a scene where they do find her body and then they just left it out for timing reasons. But I think. I hate knowing that. I heard that too. <laughs> Yeah, but at the same time, like, I don't even think it matters. Like, I don't think because the film doesn't care. Like, it doesn't it the the the, the very obvious resolution is that she drowned. Right. Like the, this idea of like maybe there was a boat in this time and maybe they heard something and maybe like it's all those are all like the kind of, uh, you know, minor clues you cling to in the aftermath of a tragedy. But I think the odds of that being true are very, very low. But additionally, the film doesn't seem to care if it's true or not. It, the film doesn't even really care about central mystery. In some ways, I'm reminded of, uh, to use a Scott and I reference from earlier, uh, I don't think that, well, we know for a fact that, that David Lynch never wanted to solve the mystery of Twin Peaks, right? Like, who killed Laura Palmer was not supposed to ever be resolved. And then yep. the show got really, really popular and ABC made him. And it makes the show worse. The, the fact that they that they resolved that because he wasn't planning on it. There's there is no resolution to that mystery and life doesn't always have a resolution to mysteries. And the film is ultimately not even about that mystery. Like it really doesn't care what happened to Anna. The people in the movie don't care what happened to Anna except sort of briefly and kind of at a very distant level. That's my opinion anyway. Well, and I think this is also, you know, the fact that maybe they did script and film a scene that resolves the mystery, uh, but that, you, you can say Antonioni deliberately left that out. I think that's part of the expansion of cinematic uh, grammar and, and potential here because yeah. all of a sudden you can make a film that is very compelling but does not it, it has that openness to it. You don't have to tie up the loose ends of the plot. Uh, you can set up the mystery and then discard it. And, and that's actually a very deliberate statement there. It's not like uh, it was an afterthought. Uh, he's, he's 
basically saying we can just live in that tension and then even let it go of the tension. It, it's not like this big enigmatic puzzle. It's just a thing happened and then this this tangent that we were on has just kind of you know dissolved um, and that's okay. It's it's there's there. This is a new way of of. Um, of you know of of creating cinematic narrative and introducing audiences to the idea that <laughs> you can you can just let let that ambiguity sit on its own terms without having to apologize or explain for it and i think that's that's probably one of the you know driving factors for the derisive treatment that the movie received in its in its premiere uh people were just not used to letting uh, having things having things drift off like that and it and it just felt like uh bumbling or amateurism or or something i i i would like to know what exactly it was that created that that scandalous offense i mean i think people were throwing objects at the screen it was <laughs> it was pretty it was pretty crazy and of course there's other you know great works of art you know stravinsky's right of springs you know people are tearing the seats out of the theater and and so on that and that kind of reaction definitely is is a is an indication that some new territory is being broken here, uh, but that this wasn't some kind of accident or whim. Uh, there, you know, Antonioni was recognizing uh, there's some new ways of doing things here, and uh, he really opened the door for you know what now is is a very you know common uh, uh, common way of of creating artistic cinema. Uh, this really was a, a was a, a great opening into this new style. I think what people were reacting against was kind of runs deeper than just the lack of resolution. Although I think in retrospect, that becomes an easy thing to point to if you don't like the movie. But I think it has just as much to do with how little seems to happen and how long it just stretches out. Um, mm-hmm. Just how much of the film is cons- is not concerned at all with what people are saying. You know, very few lines of dialogue matter at all to the telling of the story. It's mostly about what passes between people. Uh, between the times they're talking or while they're talking about something else, but really trying to avoid what else is on their mind. You know, it's such a subtle film that, and so, you know, it has this kind of noirish plot, you could call it, but it's so unconcerned with that even. And so the moment to moment, I guess, pleasures or urgency of the film kind of aren't obvious, I would say, especially in 1960. I mean, I can't, I'm, very hard pressed to think of a lot of films between this point and the silent era that are this concerned with just watching people look at each other, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I would like to uh, highlight that thing that you said, David, where you said that the film relinquishes even the tension around the disappearance. And I think that's a really important point because while we've all kind of said one way or another, the film doesn't really care about honest disappearance. It's not really true. The film is two and a half hours long. We spend an hour on the, uh, well, the lead up and then on the island where she disappears. And there's an incredible amount of suspense and tension in all of that where we care a lot about Honest Disappearance. So we're allowed to release that tension only because the tension was important at a, at a certain, mm-hmm. you know, half of this film. Remember when we watched Rome Open City and it was like part one and part two? I think this might be a convention in Italian filmmaking of the time because in Antonini's earlier film La Amike it is also in chapters part one and part two so this is almost like it's just missing the chapter headings but the film changes dramatically when they leave the island but it's also the tension is beautifully staged and built up to that point we get all these these sort of um, foreshadowing moments where when you were talking about 
them uh, making love upstairs and leaving the friend downstairs. But before that, it's like um, her father, I'm sorry, Anna's father tells her, you know, that man is never going to marry you. That's one mm. po- one point of foreshadowing. And then we get her reluctance to even go see her boyfriend. Before she goes upstairs and makes love to him, she kind of ra- rather go into a store and wait longer, even though she hasn't seen him for a month. So the disconnectedness of Anna, like the sickness in her, is very obvious. And then we have the separation of those two women at that point. And then once they get on the boat, uh, Sandro suggests to go swimming, and Claudia says it's too dangerous. And then Anna goes for it, goes in. And there's this foreshadowing there. It feels a little bit ominous. The, the water is filmed in this very, very striking, beautiful way, but it looks opaque. I mean, that water looks very viscous and dangerous. And then Anna pretends to see a shark. This is another sort of like faux disappearance. Um, and so when she finally does disappear, it doesn't feel inevitable, but it does feel like she had some internal knowledge about this happening in advance. And in fact, her last words are something like, you know, this month hasn't been long enough. Um, I just want to, I just want some time by myself, whether that's, you know, a month, you know, a year, three years. And then the, the way it's visually staged, um, is, is gorgeous. Like she's talking with Sandro. They're talking about the, the relationship problems that they're having and that she just wants more time apart. He skips a rock. He, he turns away from her. She turns toward him. He lies down. He closes his eyes and we get a dissolve, and we don't see her again. And then they search for her for a long time. So the film cares about her disappearance throughout all the first hour of the film. Would Would you agree with that? Yeah, there's there's definitely sequences where it looks like they're narrowing it down. They they uh, kind of pull the the fishermen in for questioning. There's newspaper reports. You know, there there is a pursuit, a, a little bit of a, a of a, a detective thing going on as far as you know, trying to see if they can locate. Anna somewhere and then there's even that kind of you know kind of false uh, you know moment there where uh, when Claudia is waiting for Sandro to come out uh, you know he sees that there's another woman next to him and she thinks that maybe that is Anna but it's not and she recognizes this this conflict within her that she's just as happy that Anna continues to be disappeared <laughs> so that uh, there's not this extra complication between her and uh, Sandro and, and the development of a kind of a, an unwanted triangle. So yeah, it's, there's just this, there's this kind of, um, you know, the, the thread plays itself out, but then it is ultimately just set aside. And I think that's just a, a very interesting decision that Antonioni makes, uh, you know, in putting the story together. And I just wonder if that was something that was maybe discovered in the editing process as he was, you know, constructing the film, uh, and, and just decided to just let that go and then, you know, put the focus entirely on you know, the dynamics between Sandro and Claudia. So, yeah, so I, I, w- I want to say I don't think that the film doesn't care about the disappearance. What I'm, what I'm saying is or that doesn't care that she has disappeared. What I'm saying is I don't think the film cares about what happened to her. So right. I, I, I don't think that the film wants us to care or cares particularly itself about whether or not she committed suicide or she fell or right. she's gotten on a train. Um, I think ultimately the film cares very much about the fact that she's gone, but uh, it doesn't care what happened to her. It's not a mystery to be solved. It's a uh, punctuation to be dealt with. 
And I think that that's a very different from something like a, from what I've heard about Bunny Lake is Missing or any kind of film that has as its core a central mystery. This is not something that's meant to be solved. It's something that's meant to be lived with. And it's sort of it's a commentary on how ephemeral people have become in this society. Yeah, you know? very much. A, so. a friend, yeah. a lover can disappear and... You know, after a few moments of kind of wondering what happened, Everyone you shrug it off and you move on. Exactly. And none of these people seem to really care very much about each other. I mean, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So. It's the characters that fail to care about her disappearance. Right. Yeah. Right. D- does Claudia want to be Anna? And did she already kind of want to be Anna? Yeah, they play with that. You know, she's got her little uh, brunette wig on. She's wearing Anna's clothes uh, in that in that one scene. Yeah. So so there is some. Playing Not quite with single the white I- female, but yeah, no, but but but, they, <laughs> but there's but there's playing with some identity issues there. I think I think just another thing is that these characters are all, if you look at sort of the sociology of it, uh, they've all accomplished you know pretty much the good life. You know, Sandro's got a, a very well paying job. But he's not satisfied. He's not doing the creative, artistic, architectural stuff that he really wants to do. But he's certainly making money. Uh, Claudia has, you know, landed what looks like a pretty uh, attractive specimen for a boyfriend. Uh, they're they're enjoying life, the material things, the the leisure. You know, no, no nobody's stuck to a a grind of a job. Uh, they've they've arrived. They've reached kind of the pinnacle of what uh, the good life is supposed to be. And find it curiously dissatisfying. I would also say I think Claudia wants to be seen the way Anna is. Anna has sort of a magnetic pull around her. All the characters, you know, it's kind of whenever she enters the room, the focus comes on her. Um, She wants the kind of uh, blasé, uncaring nature that would lead to Anna, you know, having sex with her boyfriend while Claudia's waiting outside. I think she wants that sense of independence and ownership of space we don't you know know as much about kind of claudia's family background but i get the sense it's maybe not as well to do as anna's you know doubtlessly her needs are taken care of but there's probably a station in life that anna's at that claudia maybe isn't they said Uh, she grew up sensibly is how she puts it that's right that's where i get that and then she says what what that means is not without without money (laughs) okay that's a good line that's where i get that impression then um (laughs) yeah so i think Claudia likes Anna or is drawn to her for that reason. She wants, you know, she kind of represents something that Claudia herself wants to be. Uh, I think that's different than wanting to be Anna necessarily, but, and that's probably to some extent why she starts to care less and less about Anna's disappearance now that she, Claudia is getting the same kind of recognition from her social group and from uh, Sandro. You know, she doesn't need kind of the friend to prop her up. She doesn't need this like entry into that station in life. Do you think that's what the Gloria Perkins thing is all about? I mean, we see this this woman who gets this fairly unbelievable amount of attention in the street that Sandro encounters earlier on in the story. But that kind of mass ogling then gets introduced or reintroduced um, once Claudia and Sandro are a couple. And this thing that David was saying about, you know, you maybe she's kind of arrived now. You know, maybe she was more of a lower middle class girl and now she's experiencing the finer things. And maybe part of having the finer things and being noticed when you walk in the room is that the attention's not always fantastic because then she receives somewhat the same kind of mob attention that Gloria Perkins had received in the street, only she doesn't seem in control of it. 
Ooh, that that moment where Gloria Perkins asks for the little souvenir. Woo! Oh yeah, jumping ahead to that. Sure. At the, oh my god, that is a moment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So is she also in some sense? Is Antonioni saying that these are all in some sense prostitutes? Is kind of an interesting question. But. Well, including Sandro. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, very much including Sandro. Not just the women, just everybody. Yeah, those two scenes that you kind of reference there, Jordan, are almost so stylized and so kind of exaggerated that they 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 seem to almost take you out of reality. It's more of like a sort of a, a subjective um, point of view, or or a, it's just very interesting how Antonioni put that together. Uh, Gloria Perkins, I mean, you'd think is this like Sophia Loren or somebody on that level of of uh, celebrity? Uh, the way the men are just carrying on. I mean, you know, rows deep. I mean, you know, you know. People, you know, 10, 15 rows back in this surrounding mob are just kind of wigging out because this this young woman is is uh, kind of on display there. And then and then the uh, the other scene of Claudia, where she's kind of walking around this kind of I don't know if it's a just a street or a courtyard, but, you know, just layers upon layers of men from all these different angles, just kind of just leering, uh, you know, undressing her with their eyes. And and it's I mean, it's, you know, obviously Monica Vitti is, is a beautiful woman, and and uh, and her beauty, I think, is a a real key to to this story. Uh, if she were a more kind of modest or or plain woman, this this story would would not unfold the way that it does. But it's you know even in a in an Italian kind of chauvinistic patriarchal society where you know at that time men could definitely you know. Uh, do the wolf thing uh, with with pretty women. Uh, this just felt like so almost exaggerated. There are just so many men just staring her down. Uh, I don't know. It was, just, it was kind of interesting just kind of to revisit those scenes. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what Antonio is trying to say there, other than the fact that you know women are are clearly you know objectified, and and I think he puts. Yeah, these two different women in in different positions. Gloria Perkins is is loving it. She's absorbing it. She's she's thriving off it. Uh, Claudia yeah. is is much less uh, at ease. I mean, she's she's quite unsettled by it. You can tell, and she's looking for a way to get away. So she ducks into the paint store. I think the sexism is definitely part of it, but I'd say my read on that also includes that since Sandra was one of the men ogling. Gloria Perkins, and he's certainly one of the men ogling Claudia. I think it's also a way to talk about Sandro's uh, uh, sort of lack of specificity that he is any one of these guys, and that's mm-hmm. what that's that's I mean that's the that's the drama at the end of the story. Like that's that's Claudia's sorrow in discovering that that there's really actually nothing special about their connection. That it is somewhat random that they were connected just through this relationship, mutual relationship with Anna. And the two scenes kind of uh, also feed into what we've been saying just about like the ideas of wealth. You know, all the characters are at the station that everyone dreams of being and yet they're unhappy. Um, You know, women in this time were told that uh, the attention from men is everything they could want. And then Claudia gets that and isn't happy. Um, So and where the characters are also facing an abundance of wealth, Claudia is slowly facing an abundance of attention. And maybe it's not all attention she wants. Let's talk about Sandro a little bit more. The The most amount of insight that we get about him has to do with his career. So he's somewhat a, a failed architect. 
and we get a couple of uh, pretty specific bits of uh, exposition about this. And one of them happens right after or right before he proposes to Claudia when they're up on that rooftop by, by the bells. And he talks about that things used to be made to last and now they're disposable. And he he talks about how he gave in to, you know, financial reward to not pursue, you know, what, you know, creative impulses he had and instead got rich. Uh, and then we, we see a, a scene where he deliberately tips over an inkwell on a, a drawing of, of some ornamentation of an alcove. It's just the way in which, you know, beautiful architecture that is obviously made to last is oppressive to him because it reminds him of his failings. And then when they're in the hotel room later on, he talks about how he thought he'd be a, you know, a broke genius in a rented room. And how that just never kind of happened for him. Clearly, he's not broke, and he says the genius thing never quite happened. So this this baggage that Sandro carries around with him, how how much do you think that that is uh, a really good summary of really what's making this man tick? I think he has aspirations to be a, a creative, artistic, you know, uh, integrated, expressive person. He just, you know... He, he can't find his way there. You know, the, the system sort of leads him in another direction, which is making money and, and looking good. And again, securing the, uh, the status, the prestige of a, of a beautiful female companion, uh, both for the you know sexual gratification that he gets uh, when they're intimate. And also perhaps just for the, the, uh, the social standing and to also distract him from that, you know, kind of inner emptiness, that loneliness uh, that otherwise haunts him uh, if he's just left to himself. I, I, just the, you know, the, and again, I, I can see in his calculations, you know, Anna's out of the picture. In fact, things were not going very well. Maybe he recognized that 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 relationship, even if Anna is found and and uh, you know discovered to have just kind of stowed away and, and, and left him behind clearly to him, this is just not going to work. Well, what do you know? There's this beautiful blonde who's just right there. Doesn't seem to have a, a boyfriend of her own. Uh, let's make the move. Why waste any time? You know that he's, he's kind of just, you know, perpetually on the make there. And, uh, that, that, that is kind of that, again, another symptom of that unhealthy eros. There's so many different ways you could read so many things in this film, which I guess gets to Scott's point about the way that it kind of does become more uh, ethereal or ephemeral or whatever, probably not ephemeral, but you know, whatever word Scott was using uh, as it goes on. But I think that like, there's that moment sort of near the end of the film where uh, uh, Claudia says to Sandro, don't forget, you said you were going to, you know, tell Ettore you were done. Ettore is his boss in the in this business he's in where he's, instead of being an architect himself, his job is to estimate estimate how long a, a project, well, a building project will take and, like, how much it costs. He's now an, an, a building estimator uh, instead of building stuff himself. And he says, oh, yeah, that is what I said. But it's, like, so very, very clear, especially right after that he sees Ettore. And Ettore is like, you better be at the office tomorrow, buddy. You know, and it's very, very clear that he's not going to leave. He's not going to go back and pursue his, his, his former dreams. And, and then she, and she kind of knows that too, maybe. And like, again, it all comes down to that final moment where she makes that decision to comfort him, which is so interesting to me. And, and I wonder like, you know, is that that recognition that, you know what, I, I'm not going to find, yeah, this guy kind of is a, a, you know, 
not going to achieve his dreams either. And I'm not going to achieve mine, but I guess we're in this together. He's here. I don't know. I don't know. Like all of that kind of stuff. Like there's just so much, so many different interpretations one could probably make out of, out of all of that. And, and yeah. And, and is he chasing this, these women and stuff because he can't build this beautiful building. And for sure he knocks over that guy's ink. It's, it's just all, it's, there's a lot going on. It's very interesting. Yeah. Another interesting thing about that scene is when he implies that he's a tourist when he's talking about why the museum isn't open. Mm, that's um, right. And yeah. I think, you know, he's not just talking about being in a town he doesn't live in. Right. Yeah. That's, that's a great, that's a great point. Let's talk about the tell me you love me game. This, this thing that starts uh, again, I think in the town of Noti when, when he and Claudia are, are finally both mutually committing to their dalliance and she wants him to tell her that he loves her in the hotel room, and he and he won't do it. Now, if I'm not mistaken, this is after he's proposed marriage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very casually proposed marriage. I mean, yeah. he, he was like, well, "Should we get married?" And she's like, "What? No." <laughs> like, yeah. What is wrong with you? <laughs> and I had to rewatch the scene where he's fighting with Anna, or they're not really fighting, but having a sort of disagreement about the state of their relationship and he doesn't say he loves her either he says he cares for her which is different and so he refuses to tell claudia that he loves her which kind of dampens her enthusiasm she's feeling actually quite ebullient in that moment um and the fact that he won't now comply with all the parameters of her fantasy she realizes maybe it is a fantasy so when they get to the nice hotel room back when they've rejoined all their rich friends and she she again asks him to tell her that he loves her and he capitulates almost immediately. I love you. But then she, it's not enough, right? Because the doubts are still remaining. So she says, tell me again. And then he says, I don't love you. And he uses it a kind of punishment, but I really love that one does actually still invalidate the other. It's not just a little punishment for her. It's the truth. Like the inauthenticity of their relationship. He is, he is telling her the truth. He comes back in the room and then says, you know, oh, I was just kidding. I do, I do love you. But then his very next actions actually, of course, inauthenticate it once again. Mm-hmm. But she says, I deserved that when he says he doesn't love her. What do you think she means by that? Well, because she, he told her, she got him to tell her. And then he's like, she's like, tell me again. And he's like, really? I'm not, I'm not here to keep telling you this, which is not nice, but I think that's what she's referring to. Is that it though? I mean, is there, is there another way to read it? Like perhaps the offense being committed here is the indulgence in the fantasy. Oh, maybe. And I, I think this is, this maybe kind of gets to that alienation thing where, you know, modern people are now self-conscious to the point where, uh, even expressing an emotion or, 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 or a, a feeling, uh, a tenderness of "I love you," well, you're sort of. Well, do I really love you? I mean, what does that mean? Is these are easy words to say, but what's really behind it? It's it's kind of that, you know. Again, that that self awareness that just gets you, kind of, you know, questioning the the validity or the the depth or the significance of of even these, you know important pronouncements you know to tell somebody i love you should be you know a very you know powerful uh, expression and and yet uh, they're they're just kind of so caught up in their own thoughts and 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 uh 
self self absorption to a certain extent that it's very hard to you know make that expression with 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 pure conviction uh, that's again another uh, another symptom of the unhealthy eros where you're you're kind of too reflexive almost to just go into that f- uh, with a full feeling with a f- fully felt emotion uh, other than maybe just the gratification of of uh you know what saying i love you might lead to in terms of sexual intimacy or or things along that line and i do want to talk about the the ending that arik has uh, several times referred to i don't know if we should briefly set it up that you know after after this i love you i don't love you moment sandra disappears to enjoy his evening claudia doesn't feel up to it so she stays in the room i guess she's sort of feeling like in a secure place um, but that becomes shattered when he doesn't come back to the room for a long time. You know, it's 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 morning and he's still not there. So she starts to go look for him, and she goes to her friend's room, and she just walks the halls. Eventually, she finds him, and he's with, of all people, Gloria Perkins on a couch. And this is where that "give me that souvenir" moment comes from. Uh, uh, so they. They have the, you know, the emotionality of both having to confront that betrayal, but then where the film finally leaves us is them having a secondary encounter uh, on a terrace, and he's in tears, and she's, you know, emotionally destroyed by the betrayal, but after a moment of consideration, she puts her hand on the back of his head, and Arik, I think you described that as she, she comforts him, is that what you said? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She because she they have her like really. It, it's a quite a drawn out moment, right? She's kind of stretching out her hand, trying to decide if she wants to do it. Kind of like trying to decide if she wants to be with him in that moment, and then she puts her hand on on his head, yeah, and kind of feel, you know plays with his hair a little bit. It feels like a comforting moment, or at least a tender moment. Yeah, I've always read it that way too, and did kind of brush over. Um, I think an important moment when she is wandering the halls and goes to her friend's room, and she says like, "I can't help but feel it on his back." And that she's going to come in and Sandra's going to go off with her. Um, and then I think the truth ends up being in some ways worse than that, in some ways better, because she doesn't even consider that Sandra would run off with someone else. To her, it's always been between her and Anna, and Anna's out of the picture now, so what's to worry? Uh, but at the same time, she p- must recognize, or, or probably does recognize on some level, that Sandro is just in need of distraction, or has a wandering mind, or... Uh, can't help but himself kind of thing. And that if she decides to get over that hurdle, given how crushed she is, she probably could form some kind of union with him, however unhealthy that may be. Um, so that I do find that gesture at the end to be very tender, but also in a way very tragic. Um, and her just kind of recognizing uh, the sort of power and hold she has in that relationship and how uh i guess kind of drawn she is to it despite what she knows about him now and what she's always kind of known about him but can nevertheless not entirely divorce herself from that this is still in some ways what she wants out of life you know a high profile good looking uh boyfriend relationship and her connection to this world as we i've talked about already is very tenuous and that in some ways, finding a way to live with him will represent uh, the so-called good life. Yeah. 
Yeah, what what claim does she really have to you know his fidelity? I mean, they've they've only been together for what several days at this point, you know, and uh, the fact that he could you know flip the switch so quickly from Anna to her, um, you know, is kind of underscored by the fact that you know whether he, you know, probably has no intention or prospect of uh, of establishing a relationship with Gloria Perkins but uh, he will he will have a fling uh, when the circumstances allow except now all of a sudden you know now that he's been caught well now he turns on the tears and he's remorseful and is that because he's sad that he got caught uh is it because he recognizes his own weakness uh is he simply manipulating uh you know through this display of emotion uh so that cloudy doesn't berate him you know and <laughs> and 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 kind of chew him out for for screwing around while when she was back at the hotel room uh not really feeling up to just partying and socializing that particular evening uh, you know, obviously, there's a lot of calculations there, and and you know the point that you just made about this is still her ticket to a good and comfortable life, uh, better than what she would go back to if she decided on principle that you know what, Sandro's betrayed her. She's not that kind of woman, and uh, that's where she's going to draw the line and and break it off. Well, that's not really where she's at either. So again, it's it's. Uh, you know how how do relationships? Uh, what's their basis? Uh, how do how are they maintained in this in this world where uh, you know giving into hedonistic impulses is kind of par for the course? Uh, you know, no vows have been spoken. Uh, you, you may feel a sense of you know exclusivity or possession or or uh, a demand that that you're going to be treated. Uh, 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 with respect and, and that you're going to maintain some kind of monogamous uh, relationship here. But uh, but why? I mean, what, what's the principle that would, would, would compel Sandro to, to say no if all of a sudden, you know, beautiful Gloria Perkins is available uh, for just a, a, f- a fun little encounter? So do you think that he's legitimately realizing remorse at the end or not? Remorse isn't even the right word, but like legitimately wanting connection or do you think he's just guilty he got caught? I think there's something deeper going on. I I think he's a a very guarded person and his signs of affection, you know, the the I love you scenes we've been talking about, just as much as his kind of uh, derogatory comments, I I find him very kind of, not fake exactly, but he kind of knows how to behave um, and knows how the kind of limits of how he can express himself or how he feels he can express himself. It might be, you know, kind of... Uh, masculine ideals or trying to be a certain type of man. Uh, but he doesn't have a major vulnerable side. You can tell, I think, early on around Anna that he's uncertain of himself, but that's different than really being vulnerable around her. And I don't think he really lets his guard down throughout the entire movie until that final scene. So yeah. I think it's deeper than just getting caught. It might not be to the point of like, he's coming to terms with the entirety of his hopeless, you know, pitiful life kind of thing. <laughs> but it's it's definitely an honest confrontation with himself to some degree. Yeah, I think there's a a touch of self-loathing in there. Like, you know, not that you got busted, but it's like, yeah, he's just really kind of screwed up. <laughs> and uh, and he's got to sort them, some things out. Yeah, a little bit of the recognition of the emptiness of all of the things that, that he's going to all the, you know, because he has just been, you know, he was going to get the gumption up to go and be an artist again. And then he clearly at least doesn't 
doesn't resist caving in front of his boss, right? He doesn't, he, he doesn't say anything like I'm, we need to talk or anything like that. So the implication I think is that he's going to go back to his job the next day. And, you know, he's just in this other fling with this prostitute and all this stuff. And I just think, I, I wonder if it's, it's just sort of a recognition, even if momentarily of the, of what, of the whole point that Antonioni I think is trying to make of the emptiness of his life. And, and to Scott's point, also the, the way that he has bought into this idea of kind of the post-war masculinity, post-war modernity, post-war uh, success and, and uh, materialism and all of these things. And it's just kind of like a product of that environment, realizing that it has provided him with no joy. And maybe even a little bit like, you know what? My fiance is probably dead or at least is gone. Right. You know, it may have all kind of come crashing down because they've been on the go this whole time. And he even says, like, you know, I learned never to sleep. Right. He doesn't even go to bed. He just wants to go back out to the party again. And once the party is gone and, and, and he's all alone, maybe he has that moment of reflection. Maybe I'm giving him too much credit. I don't know. No, I, I think that's right. I mean, I agree with all of you that there, the vulnerability is real and that it's not just shame, that there's something actually at work here that's a little bit more introspective than that. Um, and I love that you brought it back to Anna because I was going to do that too. Um, I know that she has been um, absent kind of from what appears to be the motivations of these people for some time. But I think the bubble that's been burst here has been burst in two separate ways, right? The imposter syndrome of Sandro is linked to the inauthenticity of his relationship with Claudia. And they both have to confront that now and decide if the limitations of that reality are still what they're both willing to invest in. But if what I was saying before about how their relationship also function as a way to erase Anna, then then Sandra has actually also betrayed the erasure of Anna because their relationship kind of justified her disappearance in a way. So if the relationship isn't real, then Anna's disappearance goes back to being, you know, cryptic and awful and dark and without justification. Uh, so I do feel like there's a flavor of that in his sadness here. And when, when she touches the back of his head, um, I think the, the fact that it's a, physical gesture and not dialogue is important. It's the language of the film. The film is very interested in the tactility of human behavior, not its justifications. Sandro has told us early on when he was talking to Anna that, you know, words have lost their meaning. So when she reaches out and touches the back of his head, I think it does involve some of that pity that Antonioni described in his essay, uh, both self-pity and pity for Sandro. And I don't know if it's a if it's an absolute declaration for let's move forward. But I do think that it is in some way a white flag. A, a surrender. Yeah. That's is what that I mean. The, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and the fact that it's really the last kind of meaningful event of this, of this narrative. I mean, uh, it's, it's not exactly a moment of, of reconciliation, but at least a, a, a reaching out an attempt to connect uh, that yeah, I agree. It's 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 better. It's it's so much uh, more enriching that so much of the communication that is going on throughout this film uh, is is through nonverbals, is through body language, facial expressions. Uh, you had mentioned uh, Leamike. Uh, what wasn't the the immediately uh, predecessor to this film? Um, 
but it's a very important one for Antonioni. And I just actually watched that one tonight uh, just to kind of get the two in in sort of a side-by-side comparison. And that movie is just nothing but nonstop talking. (laughs) You know, it's a, it's a very good film and it's, it's uh, you know, there are just many really interesting parallels, uh, particular scenes, uh, you know, kind of a pivotal, uh, you know, kind of conflict that happens uh, along the seashore uh, and and just a lot of other moments gabriel forzetti who plays sandro is also in that film and he looks almost identical uh that was five years earlier but uh, just to see how antonioni's uh storytelling has really progressed because like i said that that movie is just dialogue 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 and it's kind of a you know somewhat you know it's a women's melodrama about the all these different characters and and the you know the the, the they each have their little storyline and, and all of that but it's uh just talk 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 and and this here you know, la ventura i feel like you just get a uh, there's just a, such, such a richness uh of of kind of reflection that you can do uh, you know and engage with as these characters are are you know, interacting with each other uh, without the distraction of words and really letting cinema do what it does so well and and had been kind of lost in some of the conventions of of how stories were told and how characters really were just verbalizing so much more than they probably would in in a real life uh, situation, you know, where the same feelings are being felt, the same, you know, messages are being relayed, but uh, people are not explaining themselves uh, so meticulously as they are in a more conventionally scripted uh, movie, you know. And the visual style of the film, this this lack of words wall to wall, it it's really a visual experience on on many levels. I think the leap forward in the way that this film is composed visually is, is also extraordinary. Does anyone have thoughts about the way it's shot, the lighting, the midtones? Okay. It's, I mean, it's an absolutely, it's a beautiful film. First of all, Uh, the cinematography Mm -hmm. is absolutely incredible and it uses the combination of sort of old Italian architecture. If they filmed in a lot of different places all over, all over parts of Italy and, and just the usage of the architecture and the light, as you say, especially early on in the film on the, on the, um, Island, but all over, and just the 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 long those giant like long scenes from very far away, like scenes when even inside scenes where Claudia is like running down the corridor of a hotel, but she's way far away from us and she's just running towards us for a very long time. You know, it's it's like a combination of these these big vistas with the time they that that, that the film allows you to be in those spaces. I mean, I, I think you know you can see the influence of this film cinematographically um in in so many films in so many genres of films that come after this i mean i think even just like to make one kind of semi-ridiculous comparison you look at a movie like 28 days later and the early parts of that film which are you know when, when he wakes up and he and the zombies have have you know most people are gone just the giant the very far away crane shots and just the long, 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 long takes in, in big spaces, you can see a direct through line to, to this film. It's, it's, it's so beautiful. It's, it's so beautifully shot and it allows, it kind of, it, it so strongly supports the, the space and time. If, if, if the shots were close, if it was cramped, if it was in, even in, and in some moments it is a little bit like in the, um, when they're in the, that hut 
on the island. But that's kind of a that, that movie kind of closes in at that point and then reopens up again as it starts to rain and 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 Claudia goes outside. It it it's, it so supports the 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 time of the film that if it, if they had done anything but that, I think the film would have a completely different feeling and it would feel like extremely long and overly long. And you know, Antonio's all of the Antonioni films I've seen have to some degree had this this effect. Um, and it, I just, it's, it's, I'm like, it's like catnip. I'm just like, want more. I love it. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, by the way, before, before someone else says something about that, I just want to squeeze this random note in. Cause I just thought of it. Cause we were talking about, I was talking about the hut on the, on the Island. The one moment in the film that completely takes me out of, it's so random and stupid, but the one moment in the film that takes me out of the uh, suspension of disbelief is when that one guy is like, yeah, I lived in Australia for 30 years and my English is this effing terrible <laughs> just like, like there is no way that you lived in australia for 30 years anyway it's just super random <laughs> uh well on the photography um <laughs> there's also and this is something that antonio will get into more in the next few films uh there's a sense in which he kind of abstracts space and abstracts people's bodies, um, which I think really highlights the disconnect they feel not only from each other, but from themselves and from the way they look or the way their bodies can express themselves or the way their bodies can't express themselves. Uh, there's so many shots that kind of cut people off in weird ways or uh, shot reverses that violate kind of traditional film grammar that is, uh, you know, deliberately or whether Antonioni was thinking through all this or not um, I think it is reflective of his of the effect of the film and kind of the feeling he was after this kind of way in which people are eternally defined by what they say and do but wish but there's something else going on underneath them that they can't quite get out beautifully said yeah well I'd like to give everybody the opportunity to have closing thoughts. I think it's probably time to start wrapping this thing up. Um, I don't know if anybody wants to say anything about the use of score, the music or, or the pacing. We, you know, one of the things people complain about at Cannes was that, you know, nothing's happening in the scene. Obviously if you're any one of us, like that, that's one of the deep treasures of this film is the, the way that it paces itself, but anything anyone's to throw out as, as a final thought, I'd appreciate Oh, I just I just have to give lots of uh, praise to Monica Vitti. I mean, again, I've, I've already commented on her beauty, but I really feel like uh, she is such a magnetic presence and such a kind of a, a breakthrough of, for a female actor uh, who can really, really carry a movie and um, convey so much just through uh, the way she expresses herself. Um, it's just such a fascinating um character that that she portrays and and does so quite well i mean there you know it's clearly you know she's she's a sexy attractive woman but there's an intelligence there and and it's just you know she's just one of the you know great performers of of this era of cinema and um i don't know i just i i just really enjoy her contributions to the film and uh and i don't know her hair that the the way her hair (laughs) just (laughs) it's it's on yeah, it's it's it is it's it's aesthetically pleasing and uh, you know just very remarkable uh, uh, performer. Yeah, most of the discussions about her center on this idea that she was like a comedian beforehand, or at least well known for that. She, as far as I can tell, she was not well known as anything before this. Um, <laughs> she had starred in comic films, but not in well, not starred. She had been in comic films, but not in any kind of starring role. Um, but her sense of expressiveness is so key to making the film work. Yeah, I, she's absolutely a revelation. I, we won't. We, we will be 
over spoiled. There will be an embarrassment of riches in next month's film with her, Jean Moreau, and Marcello Mastriani. It's like an <laughs> uncomfortable amount of attractive people on the screen at the same time. But um, yeah, I just yeah, I just think going back, the my final thought is just going back to where we started, which is what David said. Like this is if you are interested in sort of this mission you know, exploring the history of world cinema, exploring the history of art house cinema, following along in the trajectory of cinema. This is just a foundational piece uh, along with, you know, Rashomon or, or, you know, Hitchcock or whatever. And it, it's just, it, this is a, a Titan. And uh, it, 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 you, you may not like it. I don't know, depending on what, you know, your personal taste, but it is so relevant. And I think as a film is, as I said earlier, uh, perhaps even more relevant in 2020 than it was in 1960, even in 2020 America, not 1960 Italy. I think it's just an absolute wonderful film that I'm so grateful that I got to rewatch again, had an excuse to rewatch and, uh, and to talk about. So thanks. Well, you mentioned arc that you had written about this film previously. So we'll certainly link to that in the show notes and David, you've written about this film as well. Yes, I did. Yep. Back in 2012, I think. Yeah. Scott, do you have a piece we can link to? That's a good question. It's possible. I'll check. <laughs> okay, we'll look. <laughs> well said, Link Scott. in the show notes. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, listeners, you can follow me at, uh, at Jordan SO on Instagram. Uh, where can we follow the rest of you guys? Well, I do my stuff here at Criterion Cast. Uh, uh, I will be recording a new episode uh, next week with Trevor of our new Inside the Box series as we get into the Apu trilogy. So I'll be turning my attention towards those early films of Satyajit Ray right after we wrap up this episode. Uh, I'll also be doing the, uh, the Merchant of Four Seasons for Criterion Reflections. I'll be recording that in a few days as we uh, kind of get to the next phase of Reiner Werner Fassbinder's career. So i got a few cool things coming up in the near future. Very cool. Scott? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Rail of Tomorrow. Um, I'll be on Battleship Pretension. Uh, we're recording that in about 15 minutes to talk about the best movies of the year so far. That'll be up probably around the time this episode goes up. Um, I think that's about it. And Arik, do you have anything else to plug? Yeah, uh, sure, I guess. Uh, Cinema Gadfly is my website where I've been uh, trying to watch every film in both the Eclipse and Criterion collections for many years now, continuing to do that. Uh, my podcast, Fun Fact, the most recent episode deals with um, everything going on in the world right now through the lens of facts and, and interesting things. I think we talk about some, some good things on that, and we'll be recording a new episode of that soon. Uh, Are you able to find the fun in all of the stuff that's going on in the world right uh, now? No, the title of the episode is Not All Fun Facts Are Fun. There you go. Okay. <laughs> but, Sums it up quite well. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think, you know, there's some really uh, interesting stuff. My co-host brought some really fascinating uh, things about um, uh, to the table. I, it, just, to, I guess, to give a, a very, very brief preview that the facts are about the um, history of the concept of whiteness and the default skin color of emoji. So um, definitely some stuff there. Uh, Very um, interesting. Yeah. Go, go, go take a listen. Fun fact.fm. And um, uh, other than that, yeah. Yeah. I guess you can follow me on Twitter if you want. Daniel Tiger. And uh, yeah, just like I said, happy, very, very excited for uh, La Note next month. Yes, me as well. So thank you listeners for tuning in and we will see you, like Arik said, next month for the second film in this trilogy, La Note.